0: Hi, welcome to episode 91 of Legally Clueless. Thank you so much for being part of the tribe. If this is your first episode, welcome, welcome to the podcast. (laughs) You can join the fam on Instagram at Legally Clueless Podcast. And I love eavesdropping on all Twitter convos about this podcast. So if you don't mind (laughs) my snooping, include the hashtag Legally Clueless in your tweets. I am so excited about this episode because the story featured is by a very good friend of mine and I have been meaning to have her on this podcast. It's taken a bit longer than usual but anyway. She is in this episode. A little later you will hear Kamal Kaur's story.
1: I was only 21 when I got married. It was an arranged marriage. We learned to hear the car in the driveway, run to the bedroom with two packets of noodles. I had kept a kettle in my room so that I could at least feed the kids noodles. He hit me so hard here. Momentarily I stopped hearing and I was holding my son who was just about one years old. This guy took tried to hit me, I just moved to the side He ended up punching my son on the face. I told the judge, I just want my children. I want nothing else. One of his claims was, she doesn't give me my conjugal rights. First of all, you have forced me before. No, I locked myself in my room. How do you explain to anybody who would listen to me that in a marriage I was raped? I give it a good 14 years of my life before I walked out.
0: That's coming up on 100 African Stories later on in this episode. But before we get to that, I just have to say thank you so much for all the love you showed episode 90. I included something new, but not new because I've done it before, just not in that way, (laughs) which is random convos. And I really did appreciate all the tweets, all the comments about how you identified with certain things that were brought up in the convo with Eric Underwood. I will be dropping those randomly (laughs) in future episodes. So I had a really good week last week in terms of work and just like enjoying time with close people, having very fun times with a particular close friend of mine. And honestly, the last couple of weeks haven't not been terrible especially like work-wise I think I'm really hitting certain goals that I had set out for myself for this year especially after letting go of my former management in January whilst I knew exactly why I was letting them go I was still very scared because it would mean I'm doing this thing by myself. Even the goals I was setting, I was just like, I really hope I, <laughs> I knock these goals. And I have. And, you know, December is like a good time for stock taking because it's the wrap of the year. So I was like, yeah, I've done really well for myself. So I'm very happy in that front. And even in terms of like my my people, so my sisters, my partner, my close friends, I feel like I have such good connections and I'm I'm surrounded by so much love and warmth that i i feel very zen with my people for example at the the book preview everyone who matters to me from my side had come and so it just it felt so good but i don't know if and That's if you've experienced grief. If you've ever experienced this level of guilt, I feel like every year that I get farther away from when my mom passed away, because this year was the eighth year, every year I get farther from that point, it means I've done a lot more living. And living includes not only bad things, but like dope things happening in my life. I've noticed that I feel guilty for continuing with my life after my mom died. And that every year the guilt becomes worse because I'm doing more living. So I've, this weekend, felt that guilt. I just feel a huge deal of warmth because I'm in a really good place. But I feel like a darkness knocking. And you know it's that guilt of we continued living. And it's irrational because what were we really meant to do? And what would she have wanted for for us? But it's a feeling all the same. So I started writing yesterday a lot about grief, which is not what I've been writing about of late. I've been writing a lot about love. But yeah, maybe they're interconnected because as I was writing yesterday, I realized that grief has taught me so much about love. It's taught me that there have been times when I thought I was in love and I, I really wasn't. There's been times that I thought I loved people. Maybe it was something else. Maybe it was loyalty. Maybe it was infatuation. Maybe it was (laughs) last but that's one thing i'll say that my grief has taught me that weirdly enough i am very grateful to it for it's just broken down love to be not ownership to be this indestructible thing that doesn't fade whether you can't see the person anymore that it's it's about connections it's deeper than bodies. It's it's a more spiritual and soul connection. And that is truly magical because it's so hard to even fit it into words. It's weird because grief is terrible and love is wonderful. So I realized that through my writing, especially yesterday evening, which leads me into the song of the week. First, we are so lucky to be alive at the same time and breathing the same air with Labyrinth. I think he's such a beautiful artist. <sighs> I I really hope that one day I get to see him live in concert. So I'm really loving his song, No Ordinary. My writing right now resonates with that song, and I hope you do enjoy it. So i have put a link in the description of this episode to the song. It's called No Ordinary by Labyrinth. There's another soprano-ish note that he hits somewhere in the song, and I'm just like, God, This is bananas. It's, it's such a beautiful song. I love it. All right. So before we jump into 100 African stories, just a heads up, this is the last week of 16 Days of Activism. It wraps on the 10th of December. And it's basically when the entire world spotlights gender-based violence. I did a guest post on my best friend Val. She's been on the podcast before on her blog about how I needed to re-evaluate my relationship with these international day of blah, blah, blah especially around sexual violence. Because when I was starting my initiative, people told me, oh, you have to mark those days. You have to post about it on the pages and blah, blah, blah. Being a survivor myself, I didn't understand how the animated gifs, the colors that we pick for certain causes, I didn't understand how that trickles down into my life. And so this year, I have for the past couple of months and specifically during 16 Days of Activism, chosen to focus more on stories by survivors sharing resources and holding certain institutions accountable. And something that I always wanted to highlight was sexual violence that happens within the confines of marriages. So in terms of physical violence, I lived that. I saw my mom get beaten by my my late dad. I saw how hard she had to work while going through cancer treatment to get out of that marriage and get out with her kids. But something else that for the last couple of years I've always wanted to highlight is marital rape. I was having a conversation many years ago with Kamal, whose story you're just about to hear. And then we talked about marital rape and she told me how it's so hard to get any help as a married woman who has been raped by her spouse because even the cops don't understand that rape can happen within The confines of marriage and even away from the cops, even just opening it up to other forms of rape when we talk about it on social media. There are so many times you will see people respond to survivors and say, don't post it here, go and report it, go and report it, don't tell us about it. And it's so weird to me because we feign ignorance of the failure of our cops and laws when it comes to delivering justice to survivors. We know there are serious issues with our laws and with our cops and the entire justice system. But when a survivor speaks out online, all of a sudden we forget that there are these failures and we say, don't tell us about it, go and report it. As if we do not know in a cracked system that does absolutely nothing for a survivor. So I want to highlight this failure that sometimes really is the reason we don't report i didn't report mine immediately it happened because i didn't want to relive it i also knew that it was a stranger in the wee hours of the night i didn't know him where are the cops going to get evidence from and even if they get that evidence what data do they have of the people in this country to run that evidence against. So basically, you're telling me to go and report it, relieve the entire experience for nothing. That was my stand initially. A few years into therapy, I realized that I held that against myself and I had to work on forgiving myself for not reporting. And so at a point through therapy, I was given the option of going to report it not to get any justice, but to Kind of like an exercise for myself. Eh, that experience went horribly wrong. (laughs) And the cops were not sensitive to my my case. And thankfully, I was already in therapy actively at that time. And so any damage that experience had done could quickly be rectified. But that's just my story. And so I want to be able to highlight the lapse in our justice system. And I've teamed up with the European Union to do that, to highlight how agencies that are meant to protect us and deliver justice to us didn't. And it's not just my story. I know very many survivors who have been failed by our justice system. So what we're doing is collecting these stories to help us highlight the problem and to help us lobby for change. Under the campaign I didn't report because. We want to hear your story and we want to hear your reasons. You can send your story via WhatsApp voice note to the number plus 254. 739 360 I'm going to put that number in the description of this episode. You do not have to share your name, you just need to tell us I didn't report because and tell us your story. You can also check out the campaign's Instagram page, which is I didn't report because. I've put a link to the page in the description of this episode. And for Instagram, you can write down the reason you didn't report, take a picture of that written <laughs> reason, send that picture to us or post it and tag the IG page. You do not have to put a picture of of your face. These stories will help us highlight this huge problem and help us lobby for change. And even if you're not a survivor, you can share the campaign, share the number I just gave you and the Instagram page. Let's really spotlight that our justice system is not delivering justice to survivors of sexual violence. All right. Um I know I went on there but this you know is something I'm very passionate about. I'm very uncomfortable with how things are in regards to sexual violence in my country and I'm pretty sure in many other countries as well. So let's jump into 100 African stories. Kamal Kor. Oh my god. I love this woman. She's got such good energy. We worked together At Radio Africa, I was on Kiss FM and she was on East FM. I remember my first day at work, she bussed through the studio doors and brought me this huge bar of chocolate. And she said, I never share chocolate with anyone, but I like your energy. And... (laughs) We've been friends ever since. She will share her powerful story on surviving an abusive marriage and surviving marital rape. And these are issues that could be very triggering to some. A hundred African stories on Legally Clueless with her voice powered by the European Union.
1: My name is Kamil Kar, and I am from Nairobi, Kenya. I was only 21 when I got married. It was an arranged marriage. Um, I was introduced to him. I think it was more the family saying yes. There was a huge age gap between us, nine, almost 10 years. Within five months of meeting each other, we were married, within five months. Um, And what happens is that all your life, you're told no dating, and then you're expected to sleep with a stranger the first time you're with him alone. So it kind of, I don't know. I don't know why our culture is like that. I really don't understand this, pure impure business and all that i mean sitting with someone talking to them doesn't make you impure you want to know what they're all about we barely met for two t- uh, twice before we got married alone for a coffee i, I went into it well yeah romantically inclined about uh, uh, you know rose tinted glasses so they were like um things that were set out for me to to follow and adhere to uh, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't go here. Okay, we don't have mobile phones. So landline, yeah, your friends can't be coming over now. You're a married woman. Your responsibilities have changed. You know, 21-year-old, yeah, okay, fine, I'll do it, I'll do it, yeah. You move on. I'm very adaptable like that. Yeah. You know, I did try and make it work. I, I went into, I loved the idea of living in a joint family with the in-laws and everything i loved it i'm a family oriented person i love people around me so th- that wasn't even a problem that we are living together with the in-laws and it was important to me my father in law was very kind to me treated me like a daughter like a daughter if not better honestly he was very very kind to me but yeah there were times when even he would say okay you can't do this or you can't do that but I wouldn't take it as badly as I did with the with the rest of them because their tone was it was tone so yeah there, there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of signs along the way so um, physically I think it started I think after my daughter was born she came about after seven years of marriage Which was a big hue and cry because if within the first two years of your marriage you've not had a baby, then there's something definitely wrong with you. So I was dragged through a lot of tests, a lot of doctors, this, that, the other. Turns out, I wasn't the problem. You see, that nobody wants to look at that. It's always the woman because it's her plumbing that's never in order. Anyway, my daughter was born. So obviously, all my attention, most of it, shifted to the baby, and I think he started feeling left out, if I may, uh, not getting the attention. And I think that's that's when it just it just started. It starts with a. A push, a shove, turns into a slap, then full on, you know. In all this time, it was always about the kids. I had no job. I don't have a university degree, right? I, and that was always held against me, by the way. You're not educated enough. What would you do? So, obviously, a hundred people can come and tell you, you're so good. But that one person who's supposed to matter in your life comes and tells you, you're not good or you're not good enough. That becomes your inner voice. And it became my inner voice. I believed it. And another way of controlling me was, oh, if you leave, your parents will, will fall sick and they'll die and it'll be on you. You know, so that, I, and I always, oh yeah, by the way, my mom's always, you know, she's a heart patient. She could fall sick, it would be on me. So I just started covering it up. I became this loud person. I'm always laughing, always jolly, always happy, so that nobody can think there's anything wrong, especially my parents. I didn't want them to think there's something wrong. Uh, uh, I had a bruise once, I remember. And I was wearing sunglasses. And my mom kept saying, "Okay, enough with the fashion. Now take them off. You know, you're indoors. And it was uh, during a cousin's wedding. So everybody had traveled from abroad. and, and, And mom's side of the family were all visiting and all that. And they saw the bruise. Besides my mom, nobody said anything. Everybody went quiet. Nobody said, we'll go and sort this out. We have to go and meet. You know how? Concerned people say, no, 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 this has, yeah, it was only my mom. But I I told my mom, so it was an accident. I downplayed it. I did have somebody I was confiding in. Uh, She was um, an ex-sister-in-law and uh, I would, I would tell her what I'm going through. She used it against me. I don't know if I should say this is such a Kenyan thing to put in your own mchuzi mix into it, mix the story up a bit and then present it to the rest of the family. Oh, she said this, by the way, you better watch out. And I didn't know she was doing that until, until one day when I was being told off, I was like, wait, how do you know this? Only one person knows this. And I was like, ah, okay, well, so in my early thirties, I, I realized very quickly that, please, this thing you say best friend forever, uh-uh, it's just a hashtag, honestly. <laughs> so from being a joint family, after my father-in-law passed away, we moved into our home, our own home and it was at that point by then my son was born as well and at that point because there was nobody else in the house to hear me screaming or howling now it was all full full on i had a really lovely lovely helper her name was elizabeth is elizabeth but she was very instrumental in 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 being around me and my children and she loved my kids like her own And being hit, was all. we we learned to hear the car in the driveway, run to the bedroom with two packets of noodles. And I I had kept a a kettle in my room so that I could at least feed the kids noodles, if nothing else, there's no time to cook. 99.9% of the time, he would come home drunk. Of course, besides being an alcoholic, before we moved to the house, he had already been in rehab. I'd put him in rehab because I told him, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I actually told him I can't. So I I don't know what made him say, okay, I'll I'll go into rehab. Three days into rehab, he's tearing the walls to get out because obviously now he's had to kick cold turkey and, and he's not dealing with it. I said, look, it's only four weeks. It's all paid for, just just do it. So I went for counseling as well at that point, like al on meetings. I was called in to be asked questions, how things are happening and he was there and some sessions he wasn't there. And he has openly admitted in those sessions that it's not about her. I hate my mother and my brother. I mean, I have records, his books, his journal from when he was in rehab, you know. And he's actually, he, he would have to journal every day. And he's actually written, it's it's not Kamal. I suppose that allowed me to think that, okay, maybe this can work. Maybe I can make this work. I mean, I didn't, wa- I didn't want it to end in the sense that I had two children and all. I, my parents have... Uh, I've been married for years. So, you know, marriages are meant to work, you know? In my mind, it was still, it's meant to work. Now, I don't know if I should say I'm lucky, but we moved next to a cop shop, next to a police station. One day I gathered the courage to say that, you know, things are not right because they they asked our helper, why is there so much screaming and shouting going on? And uh, so I went to them. I said, look, he, hit, he beats me up. I said, look, I, I don't know what to do. At least warn him, if nothing else. Warn him that, you know, maybe some fear of authority will stop him. You know, naive, naive I was. I didn't have Twitter back then, <laughs> so <laughs> I was really naive. I thought that a, a telling off by a slap on the wrist by the cops would actually, you know, sort him out. And they said, Mama, you have to go and talk to uh, your family to sort him out because uh, this is your marriage concern. Marriage concern is what they said. said, What can we do? You tell me. He will say, this is my wife. So I'm like, okay, him hitting me is okay. Him giving grief to my kids is okay. I don't know how it works. I don't know why uh, women who are abused are not respected enough what did you do to provoke him what do you mean he's the one with the mental issues he's the alcoholic over here i'm putting up with this nonsense there was one cop over there Um, he was very fond of my children as well Uh, his name was simon and my son would literally he was about when we came back to the house he would go there and play with simon's kids and all that i remember my ex would come to the gate and try and smash the gate with his car drive through it keep hooting like mad it's a quiet neighborhood keep hooting hooting one day simon turned up now simon knew what was going on i think he's the only person in that attack cop station who actually stood up for me and told him where if i see you here again where that's what he did to him and after that he stopped coming here to the gate But largely, the thought process is that ah, they'll sort it out. Who doesn't go through this in their marriage? You keep quiet. You You don't air your linen. You don't talk about these things. We all go through it. Our mothers, grandmothers. You know, these are men's frustrations. It's okay. You didn't cook food. You didn't put food on the table for him. What do I do? He would spit in the food. What do I do? He hit my daughter in school. And the headmaster's wife, who was the school counselor, witnessed it. And she called me. He went here, going to drop her to school that morning. And I think he got mad at her because new school, she's scared. top about that? His behavior wasn't all that fatherly, honestly speaking. And she called me and I said, call the cops. What are you waiting for? Does it matter who's hitting the child? A child is being beaten up. Call the cops. Anyway, they helped her out and all that. I went and picked her up and everything. And... I walked out on him the following weekend because after sorting that out at the weekend there was a wedding we had gone to and while driving he kept turning the music on really loud and I said just turn it down a bit please I'm driving please let me concentrate we'd gone to Karen I don't drive in Karen you know it's so far for me and I was trying to concentrate he hit me so hard here that for momentarily I stopped hearing I could just hear a buzz and I nearly veered off the road and I said, okay, let me just keep quiet, let the music be loud. You know, that's another thing, you keep quiet. You don't retaliate because you know it'll get worse. It'll get worse, so I kept quiet. We got home, I was holding my son who was just about one years old, one, 14 months. I was holding him and this guy tried to hit me. I just moved to the side. He ended up punching my son on the face. My son had blood coming down here. He made sure my son was okay. I headed to the kitchen for a knife. My Elizabeth, my helper, she held my hand tight. She says, "Mama, don't do this. They have a lot of money. They'll take your children away from you. They won't let you out." She says, "I've seen this before." So now, now in retrospect, maybe she's probably went through the same alcoholism and you know, but she had worked it out. Don't do this, Mama. Mama, just leave just leave she helped me pack my stuff she says mama go to your mom's house just go from here she she helped me pack i had no idea what i was doing i was in a daze because my son was hit i was going to kill that man that day honestly how dare he that was the straw that broke the donkey's back that he's now started hitting the children he's going to kill us and i said enough I was not flustered or anything. I was very calm when I walked out. He's yelling from the back. I can hear him yelling, don't come back in this house ever again then. I said, no, I won't. You won't even be able to become a prostitute if you tried. Who will give you money? Who will have you? That was his focus. Who will have you? My focus was to get out of there with my children. You know? So I went to my parents' home and I was shocked. My dad, who I thought was old fashioned and all, says, why didn't you tell me before? and promptly I burst into tears that I was wrong to have listened to that man saying your parents will fall sick your parents won't support you parents this parents that my parents were my biggest supporters from the day I walked out no one questioned me why the only question was why didn't you do it earlier why didn't you tell us I got such amazing support from my parents and that's why I think I was able to become strong because they were my safe place I gave it a good 14 years of my life before I walked out. So I had heard of FIDA and I had no money, obviously. My parents were not in a position to help because at that very moment, my dad got really ill. He got TB in the lower spine and he was bedridden. He was a single breadwinner in that family. I mean, mom was working as well, but it was a huge shock to us. My dad had never even caught a cold. So for us to see that this man who's been running around is now bedridden, it was a shock to everybody. So financially things weren't 100% there. And I didn't want to burden them as it is they're feeding three more mouths, you know. So... I'd heard of FIDA and I reached out to them. I went over there. I borrowed 500 bob to open my file. They said, that's all it will take. Then after that, we help you from here. And then from that point on, it was like you had to go stand in line every Tuesday or Thursday or any designated day. Hundreds of women milling outside and you're waiting for your turn. I'm sitting there clutching at my papers, at my case my everything that this has happened that has happened whatever proof I could get together this went to and fro to and fro to and fro then I was told go represent yourself in court I was like what yeah you can go in court you can just go tell them this is this happened I'm like but I don't I don't No, it's so easy just go do it you know you're educated look at these women you know we have to help them our workload is huge fair enough fair enough They made it seem easy. Every time I go there, my case is not heard, case is not heard or he doesn't turn up for the hearing. So it's postponed, postponed, postponed. I got frustrated. Then finally, after a few years, I said, what is this? You know, because then now you're lying, in, you're just sitting there. That's on the back burner. Your priority is to find a job and to look after your kids. So that's that's when I joined Radio Africa. I was in, in, in the middle of all this when I joined Radio Africa, doing a prime show, the breakfast show in the morning, being the happiest person in the world on air, the one knowing or realizing my world was actually falling apart. And um, then they... They appointed a lawyer for me, oh, but you have to pay him. I said, OK, I'll, I'll try what I can do, but at least there will be a lawyer who can fight my case for me at least. That man, hmm, he dragged me for ages and ages and ages. And when we finally got a hearing, he sent a representative of his. He didn't come himself. When I would accuse my ex of something and I would say, it's the proof is in the file. The, the judge would say, where's the proof? It's in the file. So take out that. My lawyer's representative would be going through the papers. Uh, Oh, uh, it doesn't seem to be here. And that's when it dawned on me. Suddenly, you know that Eureka moment, why court date never came, why it was always. And I was, and that's when I just let go. I sat back and I told the judge, I just want my children. I want nothing else, just my children. That's all I want. And um, when I told the judge that this man is an alcoholic, because he was starting to say, okay, half and half here, there. So this man's an alcoholic, he's been in rehab. The ex started denying it. I don't know what happened. The judge changed that day for some reason. I think the IEBC hearing was going to happen that day. So there's a lot of press outside and all that. I can't remember the judge's name, but he was so amazing. He asked him, have you been in rehab? Answer me now. I think he intimidated, uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> so. Then, from there on, I think the judge realized what has been happening. You know, they're not stupid that papers are missing. Oh, all right, okay, one of those again. Our system is like that. We can't deny that there's, you know, no corruption. Of course there is. So he says, okay, then uh, I'm going to go through this, whatever I've got, the claims that she is given, the claims you're giving. One of his claims was that she doesn't uh, give me my conjugal rights. Man, you're picking up prostitutes from all over the place. What do you want me to do? I've seen you. I have proof. What do you want me to do? I can't do this. This is not... Uh, I'm sorry, I have a daughter in my home. Does she need to grow up to know that her father is like this? So, I'm sorry. Yeah, you won't get any. No conjugal rights. First of all, you have forced me before, but now no. No, I'll lock myself in my room. End of. Half the time, and you know, he was quite strong. (laughs) He was quite strong. I did fight back. I, I most satisfactorily scratched his face. I think that was amazing that for two weeks now, he had to explain why he's got these marks on his face. But it turns out, you know, she's crazy. This is what she does. He doesn't want to tell anybody what he does or has been doing for all those years. The one time I fight back. So it's okay, man. Self-defense. At that moment in time, it was like, just get on with it so that I don't have to deal with nonsense. You know, for me, it was like, he's going to hit me anyway if I say anything. Just stay quiet. Just stay quiet. Then as I got out of the marriage, And I used to think about now I'm starting to process what I actually went through. I would get so angry and upset. I would cry, I would weep I'd go and sit in the bathroom and weep for ages. But how do you explain to anybody who would listen to me that in a marriage I was raped? Who would listen to me? Who understands this? Who was having these conversations 15 odd years ago? I got divorced in 2012 then after walking out in 2007. That's why I never tell anybody go to FIDA they didn't help honestly i'll tell you they didn't help they just thought i'm just another privileged woman walking in with a bad marriage i was in deep trouble deep trouble and nobody took the time to listen to me to understand that even i can have problems yeah they think ah look at her she's come in a car she's wearing nice clothes but don't judge me by that so and I think our temple, they they don't have a safe place for women. I mean, Sikhism is a religion that holds women in highest of esteem. Highest of esteem. Kaur means princess. You're treated like like royalty, only in in books. But I don't think in, in, in this country there is anything for women, if I was to go to the temple, that this has happened to me. I'll be sent back. No, try and make it work. The elders will come. Try and make it work. I was called to the temple try and make it work. Say so, said, would you send your daughters back to this? Would you? Why me? I've come for help. Why aren't you helping me? Let me tell you, at that point, only one person helped me from that entire, the, the chairman of the committee. He actually sent cops home to to pick him up and to question him that, from CID, that, why are you torturing this woman? After that, he stopped beating me. But the abuse was terrible. You know, many women don't walk out of, Violent marriages because they think, where will I go? What will I do? What will this world say? In Asians especially, it's always about what will other people think. It's never about my daughter could die. What will people say that I have a daughter sitting in my house from a broken marriage? It's always, it's always been like that. Stigma has always been there. Don't worry about it, man. Today it's you. Tomorrow it's going to be someone else. Just get out. Get out. Take that step get out i stayed in that marriage for the longest time because i was worried what will my children do how will i educate them how will i how 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 what 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 but hey look at me today my daughter turned 20 my son is 15. i'm a proud mother my daughter's in university my son's learning everything is so wonderful it's not been easy no it's not been all hunky-dory yes i've cried buckets in in, in the bathroom. And then I also realized it's okay to cry in front of my children. It's okay. Let them know it's okay to cry. Especially my son. It's okay to cry. Because people cry. He should know how to console. He should know how to also cry himself it's okay there's no there's too much stigma tied to everything you know and maybe if if my ex had learned how to cry he wouldn't have been so violent because all he did was blame his mother and his brother for everything that went on in his life he's had issues he's been carrying since he was a child i i often get told oh but you know you should move on you have such a wonderful partner now he loves you yes he does he loves me he supports me he loves my children more than i think i love I love them. He spoils them. He is everything to them, He's, he, honestly. And then people ask me, why do you still talk about your past? So that it can give somebody the courage to get out of the nonsensical place they are in right now and to get that hope that yes, one day you can be in a, in a happy place as well. I never thought I would ever find somebody when the parting shot was, you can't even become a prostitute because look at you, who'll have you. Look at me, how I'm loved today. I know I'm loved. My partner loves me to bits. I thrive on that. Look at me standing tall and proud today.
0: Man, the things that Kamal has survived, you you just have to really get inspired by her story and, and by her energy. I, I hope anybody who is in a similar situation as Kamal was can draw strength from her story. And listening to her story and knowing that it's going to touch on marital rape, I had to call in another friend of mine called Sylvia Ogola and she is the CEO at Kravitz Moliere and she's also an advocate of the High Court of Kenya because I I want to understand why is it that married women who get raped by their spouses cannot access justice.
2: First of all it's a pleasure to be here and wow Kamal's story was so sad but it's so prevalent to so many people you know maybe she's the one in 100 who has the courage to speak out the first issue we face is there is law and legislation to protect women but the question is is it really being upheld? Are the different actors involved you know actually abiding by the law playing their part in the grandest scheme to protect people who have suffered from you know gender-based violence especially in the marital context and one of the main things I really wanted to highlight you know from hearing her story was around this issue of like marital rape. Now one of the saddest things is in Kenya marital rape is not recognized. It's explicitly excluded from the sexual offenses act which means that you know for any woman who suffers through any kind of abuse that is of any sexual nature within her marriage is really not necessarily covered even if she tried to seek any legal redress any redress with the police it's really gonna fall on deaf ears because there's no avenue there's no framework to protect that I, I find it absurd that you know all other forms of abuse are recognized and yet marital rape is not because they argue that it's a contract between two people so why would you not consent but in terms of what changes we can bring, you know, sometimes you can feel overwhelmed, like you don't know where to start with one small voice. But the truth is, it's you know, it's really speaking out and... It's going down even to the grassroots level of, you know, this devolved system we have in Kenya of speaking out to your MCA's, you know, speaking out to your member of parliament, writing petitions to parliament, and just stating that this is something that we need, you know, especially also pushing with actors and players who are in that space who are trying to really push that it's something that's high up on the agenda here in Kenya for policymakers to realise that it's something we really need. It's even something that we need even other players like hospitals and the police force to be more sensitized and realize that if they step up too and say We receive so many cases of women who come in who have been raped and we need better policy. We need better laws in place. It also puts pressure on the policymakers and the lawmakers to realize that this is not a problem that is isolated or it's KC Badaya. It's something that needs to be done now. And I think the more we also hear survivors speak, you realize that it's not an isolated problem. It's not an archaic problem. It's not women being too sensitive. It is a serious, serious... It's a pandemic, if you could call it that, you know. It's a crisis. And the more we speak out, the more people realize higher. Last week a woman did come into the hospital and there were three of them who reported. The police know actually most of these cases we get of domestic violence include elements of marital rape, include elements of sexual abuse within the confines of marriage. We need to take it seriously. And you know as Kamal was speaking and I was hearing her speak one of the the issues she raised is this issue of you go to the police, you tell them your story but sadly you find that people don't want to get involved. You know, the state doesn't really want to get involved, if it's the police, religious societies, you know, whether it's the church, the temple, the mosque, they say that marriage is this sanctity between two people, and so they like to sort of use that as a weapon against victims and say this is an issue you should solve yourself we really don't want to get involved and yet when you look in the act when you look in the sexual offenses act if you look at the constitution the penal code the marriage act parts of what they say is that you have to reach out if you want to get a divorce as she's saying they say you have to go through a period of reconciliation and you know depending on the kind of marriage you system you've been under if it's Christian, they tell you to look through the elders at the church. If it's Hindu, they'll tell you same thing. Look to the elders. But those same elders will trap you in this marriage that you're in because they want to save face. But save face for who? Because you as a victim, you're losing your life every day, whether or not you're still alive. You lose a part of your soul, psychologically what you go through. And then you find that, you know, even if you do go to the police, a lot of the times they'll tell you, sasa mamu ni shida yako. tu nyumbani, you know, muelewane itakuwa tu Na musikasirishe... Because it's as if the woman has done something, or even if it's the man. But most of the time you tend to find that because we're so patriarchal, you put the blame on the woman. It's something she's done. There's something she could do better. But in that situation, there really isn't any more you can do. The legal process, as Kamal highlighted, fortunately and unfortunately, it takes time. You know, she filed her divorce in 2007, didn't have representation at first, and, you know, eventually got the outcome she'd wanted in 2012. But that's five years, you know, and you you may not have the privilege of being able to move out, to be, you know, physically separated from this person. So you're still in the home with that abuser. You need to leave because trying to stay and trying to figure out these things while you're in that situation doesn't make it any easier. And, you know, just confide in somebody who you know will really help you. A lot of the times when you're, you know, somebody who's a victim, you're made to believe that the world is against you, nobody will hear your story. But you, first and foremost, have to be strong enough to go through the process, because the legal process is grueling. The process of going through, having to give your testimony, having to give evidence, it's an adversarial system, our court system, so it means that both parties will present their case especially in a divorce if you file a petition and you know lucky to you your husband is willing to uncontest your petition then it's a pretty smooth process but in the event that he does have you know his side of the story then it does become contentious and the courts have to give a fair hearing to both sides it can't just only be on the woman's side even if she seems to have suffered you know more greatly than the man and so in that to that extent that's why I say you need to have a support system around you it's it's not just about you know getting a lawyer because even getting a lawyer is a very It's an expensive process. It's a tedious process. It takes very long. And one of the issues you find around divorce and marriage is is the issue on evidence. Because this is coming from a relationship that's very closed off, meant to be just between two people. So how do we know what's the truth and how do you know what is a lie? So those are some of the issues that you find a lot of women will face challenges because one day they'll say this and their partner can say, no, 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 they've turned the story around. And it's really your testimony against mine. So in as much as, yes, you might have other forms of evidence, you know, if, if there's ever been abused and have reported it and you know you at least have a copy of the abstract or the the OB statement you recorded at the police station that would help but in a lot of the moments when it's just been a fight at home you know what evidence will you bring forward to the court apart from your story and the hardest thing is he will also fight against that so at that point it's at the discretion of the of the magistrate to decide between both stories what will my ruling and my decision be there's a whole array of things you need to do seek legal redress there are lawyers out there who can help it does come at a cost and I think that's one area people don't speak about enough that you know they say your rights are there to be be protected, there are lawyers out there who protect you, but for them you also remember it is a, it's a day job, like for me, I mean it's my day job and it's not necessarily something that you can only do for free because it does take time. I can say something like the organisation I work with where I'm the CEO and Chief Legal Officer at Kravit. We're trying to reach out to a lot of lawyers who are willing to at least even help advise women on the process of the divorce, at least try and connect them with lawyers who are able to help them, you know, and offer different prices because not everybody might have, you know, 500,000 to pay for legal fees. And so once you don't have the fees, you don't really have access to the court. And if you fight it yourself, you don't understand the nuances of what goes on in the court process. You might not understand the thresholds and the burdens of evidence that need to be proved and how to put your case forward. So, you know, all of that can be really difficult. I think the main thing we need is to sensitize everybody in the system, to sensitize people in the religious space about when women come forward, you know, don't don't force it on them to say that prayer and counselling will bring them together. If it's not working, it's not working. And it's it's not worth the sacrifice or the pain it causes even to the people around them, you know, the children and the other family members. Don't try and think you just have to familiar and keep it together and stay strong because, I mean, you don't want to know what the worst outcome could be. For each person who's listening or is wondering what they can do, it's, it's speak out and reach out to anybody you think who could play a part because you never know who will be the catalyst of change.
0: 100 African Stories on Legally Clueless Are you a victim of SGBV? Have you reported your case? If not, reach out to us and tell us why by sending a voice note via WhatsApp to plus You can also write your reasons on a paper take a picture of you holding that paper and share it with us on our IG at I Did Not Report Because Speak up against SGBV with her voice powered by the European Union I don't know if anybody else got goosebumps hearing Sylvia say that marital rape is not captured in our laws. I'm here talking about justice and the law doesn't even exist. So, ah, so much work to be done. And, And it's true what she said. It can get very overwhelming to think about a lot of the things that needs to get done. I'm very thankful that Sylvia agreed to be on this podcast and to share just where things are legally. And she also did say that in case you need some legal help, perhaps you're dealing with an issue around sexual violence, you could actually email her, which I thought was super sweet of her. And her email is sylvia.ogola at outlook.com. I will make sure I put that email in the description of this episode in case you just need somebody to give you some legal advice to know what steps you should take as a survivor. I also do hope that You either share your story under the campaign, I didn't report because, or if you're not a survivor, share that campaign so that we can get as many stories to help us highlight the problem and help us lobby for change because (laughs) things just have to change. But on a slightly more positive note, I have to send all my love to everybody who sends audio notes to the Legally Clueless hotline number. That's the number you can share your story demo to in case you want to be on this podcast and share a story of something you've experienced. All you have to do is record a one-minute story demo and send that to the Legally Clueless hotline number and we'll take it from there. The hotline number is in the description of this podcast. But let me just give it to you also. It is plus 254-768-628-790. And also, if you hear something on any episode that you resonate with send me a voice note as well this is a cool safe fun space for for you and for me i genuinely enjoy your podcast i'm such a big fan um i'm a beneficiary of your fuzu stroke adele onyango initiative and i just like to say like i stand a queen genuinely i'm such a fan my dad is such such a fan he used to Work at one point with your mom at AFC, so <laughs> we are such fans We genuinely like the work that you're doing. Yay, Adele, Team Adele for life. When I stumbled on that particular audio note, I was so pleasantly surprised, so surprised because my mom worked at AFC, which is the Agricultural Finance Corporation, for years, and throughout my primary school, obviously as a kid, you go to your mom's office, and <laughs> I mean the last one that I am just. Cause havoc in everybody's offices. Like I was friends with everybody there. So to hear that somebody who used to work with my mom is is listening to this podcast is so amazing. And then to hear that somebody who has benefited from one of my organization's programs is listening and her dad was working with my mom like, what? How small is this world? So that that particular audio note really just, it just warmed my heart. It really did. And I'm thankful to you for sending it and to everybody who sends in their voice notes. Please remember, you can catch this podcast on Trace Radio in Kenya every Monday, Wednesday and Friday at 9 a.m. and at 8 p.m. If you go to traceradio.co.ke, you can stream Trace on there and you can also see a list of frequencies. So wherever you are in Kenya, you can tune in the old fashioned way. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I have to end it here because my neighbor. gave me exactly one hour before she turns on her water pump for the 10th time today (sighs) that's it for this episode of legally clueless you can share this podcast with your friends you can keep it for yourself i'm not judging just make sure you're here next week for the next episode